Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Nick, welcome to the show from San Jose. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So there's a lot of things we can talk about because you've got a very interesting career and you're doing interesting work now. But I want to talk about some of the ideas in your latest book, because when I read that book, it was very surprising to me, some of the insights. For one, I've heard for a very long time about the decline of manufacturing in the United States. I mean, it's a it's something that's taken for granted. It's on every single political campaign trail. It's going to be a campaign issue in 30 days, actually. So when I read the book, one of the things I realized is maybe we're not understanding how to define our industrial base, so we measure it incorrectly. My question is, why do we have such a view of this decline of American industrial prowess when it doesn't seem to be the case? Michael, you asked a great question, and actually that was the genesis of our book, right? Because we, if you look at our book, we started off by saying, do we really understand the industrial sector? Do we really understand the manufacturing sector? And as you might know, my background is all in the manufacturing sector. Yes. It's all in the industrial sector. And uh, look, I did very well. Uh, I was in a lot of high paying jobs. I really enjoyed what I did. And I felt it was a very, very vibrant community. It was a very uh, up and coming sector. And then I used to hear from people sort of almost talking in the past, right? Oh, yeah. the 60s and the 70s was a great period. You know, this is a sector which has been lost. This is a sector which was stolen, given away. And I'm like, what's wrong? What am I missing? Am I living in a bubble or is reality off? Yes. And the truth is, the good news is the perception is off, right? Let me just start with one statistic. In 460 counties in this country, more than 20% of jobs are manufacturing jobs. That is a striking number, one in five. One in five and growing. And growing. Statistic number two, a manufacturing job on an average pays $63,000 per year. A service job pays $30,000. You pick which one you want to work for. Yes. And three, this is even the best part in my mind. If you look today at an aggregate, more than 65% of jobs being created is coming in 25 urban areas. So as I call it, the left coast and the, the right coast. Yeah. While manufacturing and industrial, honestly, is the only sector, maybe not the only sector, but one of these sectors, which is creating jobs in the middle coast, i.e. mainland Americas. Yes. So that's the, the reality, Michael, right? You look at this, I'm just going to start off, the perception is wrong, right? And that is why we wrote the book. And we said, look, this is a sector which is misunderstood, undervalued, and unappreciated. And hence, we need to tell the story because it's a great sector. It is not a thing of the past. And the best part is the best days are yet to come. We are in the first innings, and it's going to be a wonderful nine innings game. And the best is yet to come. One of the things that struck me about your book, but also your work in general, is a lot of the companies you serve are not household names. 
a lot of these companies, I've never heard of them, especially in the mobile space. You gave a case study of one company there. And I'd never heard of this company. I had to Google them. <laughs> and at, and they are a industrial giant. But because they are not familiar to consumers, it's almost as if, if it's out of sight, out of mind. And what you don't see, you don't measure. Is there some of that happening here? Absolutely, Michael. Absolutely. Right. Um, I live in Silicon Valley. And uh, it's a great place. I've lived here for 20 years. What I find is Silicon Valley is all about talk before walk. Yeah. Right. All the great things I'm going to do, all the great things yes. I'm thinking of doing. And so it is built on, in a good way, built on amazing marketing. Industrial sector, where I do my work, where I earn my paycheck, is the opposite. It's all walk, very little talk. Yes. Right. And so that's the reason why you don't know. So if we profile more than 35 companies in the book, um, and now in my new role at Fernbay, we are looking exclusively at the industrial, industrial tech space. And I can make a wild guess, and I'm pretty sure my wild guess is going to be right. None of the company names I mentioned, the, the listeners are going to know. They're going to go Google it. Whether it is a company like Dabico, it's a company like Avail, whether it's a company like Heiko, whether a company like Casella, Trax, AZZ, and you're going to be, stop, stop, Nick, what language are you speaking? Because yeah, exactly. I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. I've never heard of these companies. But on the beautiful side, let's pick Heiko, which is a company we profiled. It is one of the best performing stock in the last 30 years, Michael. If you had to go invest in 1995, for example, and you had to choose between investing a dollar in one of, pick yeah. any stock you want, right? Which you thought is a sexy stock and you picked in Heiko, you would have come out ahead of in Heiko. So the market is seemingly efficient, at least that's what they like to think. And I think I'm fairly well read in the Financial Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. But often when we talk about the tech sector, it's about the branded tech sector. Yes. And I mean, I speak to investment professionals quite often, but None of them have ever talked about the industrial companies. You know, what you call the titanium economy, and I like that phrasing, but it never comes out as an investment play. Why do you think that is the case? Michael, so that comes to my next point. It is an undervalued sector. So now you'll say, Nick, how do I make the reconciliation, right? I mean, I talked about Heiko, and Heiko is a great stock, and uh, we have it in the book. I think, except for Amazon, um, they perform better than any of the FANG stock, right? So now you say, Nick, what's the disconnect? The disconnect is very simple, Michael. Whether it is tech or whether consumer, you look over the last 10, 20 years, most of the increase in valuation came in what we call the multiples uh, expansion, right? Yes. So the best way to think about it is if you buy a house, you buy a house on dollar per square foot. Over time, the value of the house doesn't go up, but the dollar per square foot goes up and that's how you appreciate, right? I mean, unless you add more rooms and stuff like that. That analogy is what happens in tech and consumer, which is people are willing to pay more for a dollar of revenue or more of EBITDA, while in the industrial sector, you just earn more money. So now to your question, are financial markets efficient? Sort of, but they're really not. Because if you look at a typical industrial company, or sorry, an average industrial company, yes. what you'll find is over the last two decades, Michael, 92% of the entire shareholder value expansion came because the company actually performed. 92% came from multiple expansion for tech companies. 
Yeah. 8% came from performance expansion. While in industrial companies, 66% came from performance expansion and only 33 came from multiple expansion. Or put it differently, every other sector, companies got paid on what they said they were going to do. Yes. Industrial sector got paid only after they did what they said they were going to do. I like that. That's a very good way of explaining it because when I was reading about it, I noticed that all these companies have their assets in a patent pool. That means it's highly defensible postures they've taken. It reminded me of the pharmaceutical sector. It's very hard to compete with big pharma because of the patents they have. And a lot of these companies compete in the same way. So when I was looking at this, one of the things I always look at is a company is doing well, it's spitting out free cash flow when I you know, Google these companies that you listed in the book. And I was reading and I went through and I looked how many patents have they filed? And I was surprised to see how many patents they are filing. It's not as if they have some asset that they are milking. They're investing heavily in R&D. So that means they're building a more formidable defensive posture. And it's something that I think the market is underappreciating as well. Absolutely, Michael. I mean, this is the best part about industrial companies, right? Um, again, I don't want to keep comparing it to tech, but tech is a great example. Tech is a sector of, you know, the big guy becomes bigger. Um, yeah. And if you're a small guy, either you compete and become big or you usually end up dying. Versus the industrial sector is a very benevolent sector. We call it the benevolent giant in the book, right? It's a sector of live and let live. So yes. you could have multiple players um, in the same micro vertical. And that is also what makes the sector even more attractive, right? You don't have to find the silver bullet, right? You have a great product that's fantastic. The customer loves you, you make good money. You know, you pay your employees well and you're in great shape versus having to say, look, I have to find the elusive silver bullet. Yes. That's the thing that struck me as well is that obviously scale is beneficial in any sector, but scale wasn't necessary for these companies to hire a lot of people, have very juicy margins as well, while in the sort of fangs space, you need to have one company that dominates and it's a winner-take-all economy. This doesn't seem to be a winner-take-all economy. Yet. Absolutely. I mean, this is a sector, which is why I say it's a great sector we need to talk about more because it has all the characteristics you would want in, if you if this was a Hollywood movie, right? This is a guy you want to bet on, right? He's yes. a great guy, growl, right? Loving guy, doesn't do anything wrong, right? Feeds his family, doesn't fight with his enemies, right? Doesn't have an evil intention in, in his bones. So it's like, this is the guy I want to back, right? And is sort of a little bit of an unsung hero which makes it a great sector to be because, you know, I mean, you're not constantly having sharp elbows. You're not constantly fighting. I mean, you have to do a great job like any other sector and you have to make your money. But if you're good, you do well as an individual, as a company and as a micro vertical. Yeah, this reminds me, in my previous career, I used to serve mining companies, resources companies, and they're obviously not well known. So when I'd be flying business class and I'd speak to the guy next to me and he'd ask, you know, what do I do? Well, I advise this company and these companies and they never heard of these companies. It's a little bit of that happening here. But I do want to switch gears a little bit. In the book, you do talk a little bit about public policy and government industrial policy. These sectors were created without, it seems, heavy intervention by the government. There was no federal government policy in place saying, hey, let's build this sector and subsector. Is that a correct interpretation of things? Absolutely. So now what does it mean that today there's all this talk of government intervention to bring back manufacturing in the United States? Is it necessary? And if necessary, how should it be done? So, Michael, I think you're hitting on a very good point, which I'm going to call not government intervention, but government help. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say what the difference is. So it really doesn't matter which side of the political aisle you are, right? This is a non, this is a bipartisan issue, which is manufacturing, a strong industrial base is needed in this country. This was a topic which people used to talk about, but usually, you know, you quickly moved on to a different topic. I think in the last few years, especially because of COVID, because of the supply chain issues we have seen, people have now come to realize that you need a resilient supply chain, you need a resilient industrial base, and you need to have it onshore. Yes. And so now what is happening is you're, you're starting to see whether it's the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and a lot of stuff, which is high profile, which is fantastic. But even before that, I think to have a resilient industrial base, you need one thing, the most important thing, and that is talent. And today in this country, what we are facing is a massive shortage of talent, right? It's just younger. I mean, it's the demographics are changing. And even within the demographics, you know, the not a lot of people are going towards the industrial base. Some are obviously, but not that many. So I think what we really need is a government help in two phases, right? One is getting the message out. This is a great, and maybe this all of us have to do, which is this is a great sector, right? This is a very attractive sector where you as an individual can have a wonderful career, can raise a family, you know, put foot on the table, send your kids to college, all the good stuff. And two is, I think where the government's help is needed is really creating that ecosystem, right? Whether it is trade schools, whether it is, you know, uh, creating the incentive to get folks into, trade it's going to be critical because today yeah. what we find or what we have consistently found if you go back and look surveys after surveys if you're a smart kid from MIT or Caltech you would want to go into a stem job which is fantastic you should yeah right but on the flip side there is millions of jobs being created in the industrial space where or manufacturing space where we need employees right and that is where I think we need the government's intervention or help not in the intervention sense of, oh my God, you know, we are competing against uh, a foreign power, we need help. No, I think this is a great sector which has done well so far. It is really, we need the government's help to turbocharge this effort. This can, this can, this is a great sector. The two things we need is capital and labor, right? The two biggest suppliers. I think capital is already flowing in. If you look at the money coming in, not I'm not talking about the government sector, I'm just talking the private sector. I mean, Tesla was a great example, right? Tesla, who would have thought uh, and sec- an industry which was, you know, invented about 150 years ago is going to see the kind of money which flows in and makes it one of the most valuable stock in the stock exchange sort of has created the, has, uh, has broken the myth that industrials can be sexy again. So yes. capital, I don't think that's issue at all, right? People get it. People are willing to invest. And as you know, dollars and pounds and yen has no boundaries. People are willing to put money where they're going to make money. So that is great. It's getting the talent is going to be the critical part, Michael, right? And I think that's where the government help is needed because this is beyond one company or even beyond one sector. Everybody has to pile on to get the message out and build that ecosystem. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're advocating, and I like it, is a little bit like the German model, whereby the government creates first a culture of vocational schools, and then it has standards and it funds each of the different states to set them up. But you're not saying the government should step in and say, this is the sector we need to fund. It's not about picking winners and losers. So just looking at the narrative in the newspapers, I was reading something in the Wall Street Journal about two days ago. Why is there this prevailing narrative that we're losing 
as a manufacturing nation? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, and maybe it's an unfair question, but let me rephrase that because we don't know the motives of the reporters, right? We yeah. can't speculate. Maybe a better question is that, do you think that only one half of the story is being told about how some industrial sectors are dying, but new ones are taking their place. Maybe that story is not being told. Maybe, Michael. I'll go to answer your first question, right? Why is that story told? Because even I would sort of say, I like that story, right? Because it creates a sense of urgency and I like more, right? Instead of having X, if I can have 2X, I would like that better. So if I have 100,000 manufacturing jobs, fantastic. If I can have 200,000 jobs, I think it's even better. Right. So I think not that there is a wrong narrative, but what I would say is sort of saying, hey, guys, we need to do more is going to be critical. To your earlier point, I do think like everything in life, there's a lag effect. Right. Mm -hmm. I do think there are a few areas, for example, where we did mess up. So take semiconductor manufacturing. Yeah. We have lost that. Right. I mean, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, we used to manufacture all the chips here. But then in the 80s and the 90s and 2000, it became pretty cool to say, look, manufacturing is not cool. And it moved offshore. And we paid the price for it last year in the last few years um, when the chip shortage happened. Yeah. Right. So I think if you take a very narrow example, Michael, you're absolutely right. We have lost that and we need to get it back. On an aggregate, more is always better. Right. And so to answer your question, I think the narrative which is being told is in certain sectors or certain micro verticals like semiconductor manufacturing, it is a factually accurate statement. We did mess it up. We did screw the pooch, as they say, and we need to get it back here or we need to at least have a presence here. But like, for example, in others, we're doing pretty well. If you look at precision manufacturing, so the equipment which is used to make semiconductors, yes, you are still leads in that, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you have to, um, the story, as they say, you know, ocean on average is four feet deep. Absolutely. Right. But you have to figure out whether you're talking in the Marina Trench, which is the, the deepest point, or you're talking in the shore where it's shallow. That's where the delta becomes very clear. And so there are sectors where we have lost and we have to bring it back. And in, But overall, I think we are doing pretty well. And I think it's also fair to say there are some sectors we've lost and it's okay if we never bring them back because we can't be the best at everything. I think, Michael, I agree. I would sort of say, look, I'm a greedy guy. I say, <laughs> you have to ask, why should we give up if you're really good yeah. and we have got an amazing workforce and that gives us a competitive advantage, we should do it, right? I mean, I always say this point. I mean, should we make coffee cups? No, because anybody can make a coffee cup. But on the flip side, the question I ask is, why should we not make coffee cups? So if you look at a coffee cup, it's made of mud, and it's made of energy, you're baking it in an oven. Yeah. It's the same, a cost of mud is the same, cost of energy is the same. So whether we do it here or in China or Vietnam is the same. And the cost of logistics is much higher because you're shipping a heavy product. So you would argue economically, it probably makes better to make coffee bucks here, right? I'm just picking up a very lame excuse to make the sure. point. But you're absolutely right. There might be certain sectors where you say, Nick, look, I don't have any advantage. Sure. But if there's any sector where you believe, and there are lots of them, where we have a competitive advantage and we need to do it because it gives us an advantage, we absolutely should not let go of it and we should bring it back.
if you look at American labor costs, right, you can draw some parallels with the Germans and the Japanese. They also went into precision manufacturing. So given our labor costs, is it inevitable that that's where we'll play in the value chain? It's a very interesting question you asked, Michael, right? So we as Fernbay recently acquired two companies. One is Dabico and one is Avail. I'm very proud to say both those companies have manufacturing plants in the highest cost locations. Dabico is in UK, yeah. Germany, and Cyprus, Southern California. And Avail has seven plants, all of them in the US. And I have no intention of ever moving them anywhere else. Why? Because as they say, look, it's not the cost, it's what you get out. Yes. And we have an unbelievably productive workforce. We have an unbelievably qualified workforce creating a product which has the highest value for the customer. And I can say this with a straight face. There is not a company out there. There's not a location out there which can compete with these guys as good as they're doing. So it comes back to the old adage, right, Michael? If you're good at what you do, then, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, if I do it at a low-cost location, will it matter? Not really, because even though it's a very high-paid workforce, they deliver way more than what they're getting paid, and that makes a big difference for us. So that's a great example. It actually makes the point whereby, given our labor costs, it makes sense for us to, you know, as you say, be the best you can be, in other yeah. words, for specializing, so that you can create the most value. Basically, you're very productive. Your yeah. output value divided by your input costs, that's the ratio you're focusing on. I mean, when you're sitting in your board meetings, you're saying, okay, this is the cost, we understand it, but what's the output value we're creating? And is that ratio constantly going up? And are we making investments that's going to make that ratio go up? Is that a good way of thinking about it? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. So let's come back to a government policy because it is election time, right? <laughs> and it's going to come up on the election trail that we are losing our industrial capability. America is losing at manufacturing and so on. Is there a case to be made for you to speak to some politicians and guide them in terms of where we really lie in our capabilities and manufacturing? Because there's, there's definitely a disconnect between the, the data in the book, which I agree with, and what's being said in public. Yeah. So, Michael, I would sort of say, if I was talking to a politician, if I was talking to Joe Biden, I would say, it's not like we are losing, but we can win better. Yes. Right? One thing of when you're ahead in the race, continue to be ahead in the race. Right? So, what I mean by that is from a government policies, right? If you believe you're losing, you'll do a lot of stuff, right? You'll do defensively. Yes. But if you're winning, you do a lot of things differently because you'll be on an offensive. And I think it's a latter case we need to do, right? Which is in especially industrial base, precision manufacturing, high-end manufacturing, we're doing good. We need to make sure that we let the winners continue to win. What I mean by that is let us create the right policies so that they can hire labor easily. Let us hire the right policy so that they can expand easily. Let us not ask for handouts, but let's level the playing field. Put it differently, if there's some other country out there which is creating unfair trade policies, then let us speak out openly about it and make sure that it is not one company against a country, but it's a country against a country, right? I think that is going to be critical, Michael, right? I like this that. is a sector which is very good. They know how to fight their fight. They know how to punch way above their weight. As I said it in our book, they don't need any help. Let us just not block them. 
right? So the policy, I think we need them is not a policy to help them. It's a policy to make sure that they're not blocked. I mean, because it's it doesn't matter whether you're the biggest company like a GE or a Danaher or Roper and list on, or whether you're a small company. All industrial companies do really well. Why? Because they have a dedicated workforce. They have a very loyal workforce. They know what they're doing. They, they're very good at what they do. They add value. Just give them a shot, right? Let them fight their battle, right? Don't tie their hands behind their back and throw them into the ocean because that's when you know companies struggle, whether it is in trade policies, whether hiring policies, environmental policies. Make it a level playing field and then you'll see who wins. And nine out of 10 times, or I'm going to say 10 out of 10 times, the US industrial base will win. Is there a case to be made? And I'm thinking of Intel as an example of this. There was a time when Intel was worried that because his chip was inside a laptop, people wouldn't know that it was an Intel chip. And they focused on branding themselves. Is that a case to be made where industrials need to be better at branding themselves? You know, there's two schools of thoughts on this one, Michael. I mean, I can argue both, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm an investor now, so very selfishly, I'll say, yeah, you should brand it because if I brand it more, I'll get more investors. If I get more investors, I'll get a better multiple. So I'll say absolutely, right? Um, but then the other one is industrials are very good with the people who matter, right? Mm -hmm. um, so like, for example, if you take Avail, Avail is a leader in making electrical infrastructure products, switch gears, you know, mid-voltage buses, high-voltage buses. So if you're a utility, you know that, right? So you don't need to market to them. You would need them to market to me and you because if I told you what Avail does, you'll be like, I have no clue. Hey, you need to educate me. So the question here is, do they do a good job? And marketing is a very bad word because I don't think they do marketing. But do they do a good job of letting their target customers know who they are and what they do? Absolutely. Do they do a better job of letting everybody else know? Absolutely not. Right. And that is a million billion dollar question is, should we do that? And I think this conversation we are having makes me say, Michael, we really should, because if I don't know who you are, I don't know how I can help you. And as a sector, we should get help from everybody. Right. It doesn't hurt. And it's very important if the, the overall general population understands how critical this is. And one of the things that we talk about it in the book is look around anything you see everything you see and touch is made by the industrial sector. Yeah, the reason I mentioned this is because, as you mentioned, the government needs to help, but the government's only going to help if there's someone in the government thinking about this every day. Yeah. And it's going to be pushing the case. And the only way someone thinks about it is that if, if it's written about, it's made an issue and so on. So that's the thing that came up in my mind is that you know, if government help is obviously needed, but government is not going to get up and say, yes, we're going to help these guys because we have three hours free on a Friday. So let's you know, do some work. So it's just a question of how does this issue become top of mind? And I was thinking about how that plays out. And Michael, you are absolutely right. We need it, right? I mean, I'll give you a great example. You know, I have two kids. I mean, they're much older now, but when, I, when they were younger, my son would come to me and say, dad, why don't you work for a cool company? <laughs> and I'll be like, why? He'll be like, you know, you talk about companies like Wellbuilt and you talk about companies like JBT and you talk about companies like AZZ. None of my friends know about it. And, <laughs> that cool? You know, and you know, when a five-year-old tells you this, you're like, yeah, I'm not a cool dad, <laughs> but it is true, right? I mean, everybody wants to be appreciated. And 
and, and we have it in the very first chapter of the book, right? And we actually did it. You, you think about your typical day, Michael, right? You wake up in the morning, right? You go out on the deck to watch the sunset or sunrise, sorry. You know, you decide to fly, right? You go to the coffee shop and you want your bagel heated up quickly. You board the plane, you know, it's super hot in Phoenix or super cold in Minneapolis and you, you want to stay warm. You walk through a heated uh, jet bridge, you get into the plane, the plane is on the ground, you know, the plane is heated or cooled right. Every one of this I just told you is done because of an innovation in an industrial company. And yet, right, we don't know about it. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, we look at it, I mean, me when I say the folks in my company, we do because that's all we do. But chances are, if I told you, okay, Michael, when you go stand in a line in Starbucks and you're busy and, you know, you want your muffin in 30 seconds, right? What technology allows you to heat up your muffin or bagel quickly? And you'll, you'll be like, I don't know. That innovation, you know, how do you heat up food quickly, uniformly, without burning, came from a company called Velbert. If you think about when you're boarding a plane, right? I mean, it's hot or cold in Phoenix or Minneapolis, you know, keeping you warm uh, is because of a company called JBT, which is, you know, which is building the, uh, the, what they call the PBB, the passenger boarding bridges here. And all of these are companies which nobody knows, or well, yes. nobody might be too strong about. A lot of people don't know. And I think increasing that awareness, I mean, it's always good, right? You want to be proud of, for the company you're working with. So back to my earlier point of attracting talent, I think that's going to be critical to attract the young and the brightest to this. I mean, like the next Nick Santhanam's five-year-old kid comes and says, dad, why don't you work for a cool company? <laughs> the kid should be saying, oh yeah, you know, JBT or Avail or Dabico is a pretty cool company. And same thing for investors, the same thing for people like you and me, right? I mean, when you read the book next time, you should be like, oh, I know this company, I know this company, I know this company, I know this company, which makes it even more interesting. Well, there's an interesting story. Many, many, many years ago when I was single and I was working in London and I was working with one of the top resource companies in the world. I was sitting at a bar and I met this lady and she asked me, you know, what, what do you do? And I mentioned, this is where I work for. And you can see the look on her face, no recognition whatsoever. She's probably thinking, man, he didn't say Goldman Sachs. He didn't say Morgan Stanley. Maybe I need to get out of here while I still can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, you didn't say Apple. You didn't say Google. No. You didn't say Facebook. It, it was a multi-billion dollar company, at least a market cap of maybe $40 billion. But, but nobody knows of this Nobody company. knows. Nobody knows of this company. It's an Asian company. It's in a very specialized area. But so I can understand the challenge here. So oh, yeah. as an investor, did you go into the space because you feel it's undervalued? What's the reason you moved in and how are you looking at companies? Absolutely, Michael. I mean, look, as they say, put your money where your mouth is. Yes. Um, this is the sector I looked at and said, look, I love the sector. It is an amazing sector. And um, I genuinely believe this is a sector which is undervalued. And I can talk about it. As I say, you know, you can talk or you can walk. And myself and my core team here at Fernway, they said, we're going to walk. So at Fernway, what we do is we, uh, we know the space very well. We know the industrial companies. We know how to create value. We know how to drive value. And we said, great, let's pair up with investors. And we've got a bunch of amazing investors backing us. And so we go in, we either buy a minority share, a majority share, a complete buyout. And we put our folks, we put our key team as a management team. And we drive the transformation. And as they say, the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, we can talk about it or we're going to walk about it. And that's exactly what we're doing. So effectively, you guys are a private equity firm. 
We are a private equity, but even one step further, Michael, we are, I mean, I think we are more like the Berkshire Hathaway, right? Okay. We, uh, I mean, obviously, if we need to get out of a company, we will, but we are not in any rush to exit an investment. We like to go into a company and like to build that company and make it into a what we call a segment of one, meaning which has the best product, the best customer relationship, the best performance, and stay in it. I mean, when you're with a winner, why do you want to get out of a winner, yeah. right? So our model is go into a company, make the company better, continue to make it better, help that company grow, and stay in the company for as long as we can and as long as we would like to. And how long have you been in this uh, new business? How long have you been running it? For about a year. And you're enjoying it? I mean, it looks like you're enjoying it. It looks like you're having the time of your life. Oh, absolutely. It's been a blast. It's, I mean, for me, honestly, Michael, it comes down everything to people. Yes. And industrial sector is an amazing sector filled with, I call it friends and family, right? This yes. is a sector a I feel very much at home because they're just great people. It doesn't matter whether you're dealing with the chairman of the board or the CEO of the company or a frontline operator. Uh, it's it's wonderful, right? I mean, like just to bring it up, Avail, this company we acquired, we have a plant in Jackson, Mississippi, and the factory manager is a wonderful gentleman by the name of Steve Davis. And I met him only six months ago when we were looking at the deal. He's a wonderful guy, right? I mean, I would absolutely, I love talking to him and he always has great ideas. And even if I don't have anything to talk to him, I, I love picking up the phone and talking to him. So, I mean, what other sector can you say that, you know, you're surrounded with wonderful people? Yeah, I like that. I remember speaking to someone, I can't remember their name right now. I spoke to him and his colleague, and they advise family-owned businesses. Mm. And what I found very interesting is that when you, we talk about companies like Apple and so on, I've never had anyone ever tell me, wow, I really like picking up the phone and speaking to this executive from Apple. Nobody's ever told me that. <laughs> but when it comes to a family-owned business, because they don't measure themselves on a quarterly basis, and because they tend to know their employees, they tend to be a very different kind of people. They are the kind of people you want to know you want to spend time with, they tend to be quite pleasant. So my question here is that when you're doing these deals, are you doing them in such a way where you want to keep the owners in the business to some extent? Is that a plan you have? Absolutely. So as we say, Michael, we start and end with people. We bet on people, right? So you look at Dabico, we bet on the current management team, right? We like them very much. We kept them, we incentivized them. They're wonderful. You look at AZZ, um, they sold Avail to us, but they're still 40% owners. Tom Ferguson, who's the CEO of AZZ, is wonderful. And I told him, Tom, I don't want you to walk away. I want you to help me. And more important is, I, I mean, I like Tom. He's a wonderful guy. He's a wonderful friend. And I said, Tom, I don't want you to walk away. I want you to be in this business. You know this business way better than I ever will. Why would I want to lose that, right? Um, so short answer to your question, we absolutely bet on the team. Uh, I will be the first guy and I'll be the last guy to say, I absolutely don't have the answers to all questions. Yeah. My value add is really taking, which is something already good and making it better or something making even greater. And I like the fact that you guys have moved pretty fast. You've been doing it for one year, but you've already done three deals. Absolutely. Now, so I'm going to ask a, a little bit of a personal question, but I know many, many partners, colleagues of mine who try to set up investment firms, but they, they were never able to get past the planning stage. And I've known many of these guys, and you, you probably know them as well. We probably have similar colleagues. But how did you make that jump so far from planning to getting the deals done? You know what, Michael? I'm going to let you in on a secret. It is exactly what you learn in the industrial sector, right? Industrial sector is not talk, it's walk. 
Yeah. Everything in the industrial sector is how do you operationally execute? And that was a learning I got for 30 years being in the industry, right? And I'm being serious. That's exactly what we did. We planned, but planning was only so much. Yes. We went and executed it. At Fernway, you know, when people say, what's your strategy? We have a very simple line. Our strategy is execution. I like that. Right? And look, we got, the second is we've got great people, Michael. That is the truth, right? And um, when I was young, one of my mentors gave me an advice. He said, Nick, as you grow older, you should always be the dumbest guy in the room. No, oh, I like that one. <laughs> and uh, and I looked at him. I thought he was joking. He said, "No, think about it. When there are smart, there are smarter people, way smarter people than you. The question you have to ask yourself is, do you want them on the opposite side of the table or your side of the table?" And I said, and I paused. He said, "Nick, that was a rhetorical question. It's on <laughs> your side of the table." I said, "Oh, thanks. No, but it's the truth, Michael. Right? We have great people. I mean, Fernway." Um, whether it is our COO, whether it's our CFO, whether it's our operating executives, whether you have a board, it is top-notch. And I mean it. And uh, I am blessed and I'm privileged to working, be working with such a great group. I mean, I'm delighted, actually. And how did you assemble your team? Is this people you worked with? Or how did you find them? Because that's the hardest part, finding people that share both the values, which is by far the most important. And then this you know, desire, this fire in their belly to do something important with their lives. How do you find these people? You know, um, I'm going to say, I jokingly say anybody and everybody who works at Fernway committed one crime. They ended up working with me sometime in their lives, right? And so um, if you look <laughs> at our core team, most of them are McKinsey, ex-McKinsey, right? Um, so it's a folks bunch of like my COO, him and I worked for more than 15 years, right? And uh, he decided to leave the firm. And I said, fantastic, come join me. And it took me a three second conversation. Similarly, Bill Johnson, who's a, who was the CEO of Velvet, was my client for a long time. Yes. And when we bought a veil, I told him, Bill, I need you to be the CEO. 30 seconds later, he was in. And so long-winded way of answering your question, Michael, it's, you know, when you're as old as me, you end up working with a lot of people and you know a lot of people and you know a lot of great people. And so that makes a big difference, right? You, you have the privilege, you have the honor of working with such great people. It's very easy to say, you know, whether it is Shaker or David or Michael or Dan, I mean, like uh, my GC, uh, my general counsel, Dan Flynn, worked at Western Digital for more than, I think, 15 years. And I knew him for more than 15 years. So it was when he was leaving and I called him and I said, Dan, would you want to be my GC? I think it was literally, I'm not kidding. It was, again, a 30-second conversation and we had it. And he's a wonderful guy. I mean, he's probably one of the best legal minds I've worked with. And, you know, 99% of the things he says, I don't even understand. So, you know, that, you know, to the point, I mean, anything on the legal side, I know we have covered because we've got an A plus player driving it. One of the things that I find very refreshing about our conversation, and I would say you're the only person I could say this about ever that I've spoken to in the last maybe 10 years is that typically when I speak to anyone who had a senior position in the services industry, particularly consulting, investment banking, I would say private equity and venture capital as well. When you talk to them, they always want to talk about general leadership and strategy issues. They never like to talk about the sector of specialization. You speak to anyone, they'll talk about general strategy and how to analyze an issue, but they never show a love for the sector. Like if people want to talk to me, I want to talk about resources, right? I like to talk about how to mine stuff, how to move it out of the ground. Yeah. You have that as well. You like to talk about the sector where you work. And where you work, it's very rare. 
because most leaders uh, talk about general leadership issues, general strategy issues, general valuation issues, but they don't really get into the nuts and bolts. I'm pretty sure that you could have a pretty detailed discussion about setting up conveyor belts at some warehouse somewhere. <laughs> I, I'm convinced you could do that. No, thank you, Michael. Like, look, um, when we started Fernway, we had this conversation with one of my lead anchor investors, and he gave me this wonderful advice. He said, Nick, don't go play somebody else's game. Play the game yes. you're good at, right? And I'll tell you, Michael, we don't know consumer. We don't know retail. When we know industrials, right? We know the players. We know uh, the macro trends. We know the headwinds. We know the tailwinds. And that allows us to really know that space, which makes a big difference, right? I mean, when we are either looking at a deal or we're talking to a company about how we can help them, how we can partner with them. And knowing that to your point, Michael, sector-specific expertise makes a difference. I mean, about Fernway, we sort of say, look, we bring money, but money is a commodity. If I have a dollar and you have a dollar, a dollar is a dollar. But what we have is really the domain expertise, right? We understand the industrial space. And then we have the operational transformation capability through our people, right? I mean, I, I say this and I really mean it. It's the people that makes the difference, right? I mean, you can have all the automation you want and you can have all the AI and uh, amazing quantum computing, but it's the people that makes the difference. And I can tell you this six days out of seven days and seven days all the time is we have got the best people, Michael. And I, because of that, I know we're going to win, right? Look, are we going to fumble? Of course we're going to fumble, right? I mean, do I, I mean, have I gone through days of all-time highs and all-time lows? Absolutely. Right. But I know at the end, we are going to get the best outcome ever because of the people. It might still not be the outcome we want. Let me be very clear. I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't want to be cocky and say, oh my God, it's like we're going to be that. But I know what is the best outcome. We're going to get it because we've got the best people. Yeah. But also, you, you seem to have a love for the sector. Yeah. This makes Absolutely. a very big difference. You actually, your eyes actually light up a little bit when you start speaking about this thing, which is, again, a very rare thing because generally the Western model of leadership is a leader can be a leader anywhere. It doesn't matter the sector. And I think that's the way we encourage things, and especially in business schools, right? We teach people yeah. to be general managers with an emphasis on general. And you learn these principles, you can go anywhere you want. So in terms of doing these deals, what do you think has been some of the lessons you've learned in, obviously you've acquired the companies, and your goal is to create more value. What have you, some of the principles you've applied in creating more value? I think, Michael, you, and this is industrial companies, right? I can't uh, extrapolate for other sectors. I think it comes down to what I say, the basics, right? Yeah. Before we go to run a marathon, we have to learn to walk. What I mean by that is all of these companies are great. But one of the things we just say is, guys, before we go acquire other companies, before we do anything, let's get our house in order. Let's make sure our supply chain processes are aligned, our people processes are aligned, how we do our forecasting is aligned, uh, what we call CLI, customer loyalty index. Do we really understand what customers like about us, don't like about us? Um, again, when we screw up, and we will, let us make sure that we are humble, we learn from it, accept it. Because it's very easy to give excuses of why things could not wrong. And let's get that right, right? Um, it's going to be critical, right? I mean, again, not to keep going back into my portfolio companies, Michael, but in one of my portfolio companies, we screwed up, right? We promised yeah. a customer that we'll ship a product on, uh, you know, 
uh, September 30th and uh, uh, whatever happened, something happened. We had not even started making it and it was October 7th and the customer called and we realized we screwed up. And it was the usual stuff. Oh, you know, this was wrong. That was wrong. Yeah. And I said, guys, it's wrong. We screwed up, right? And we called the customer up. I mean, obviously he was very unhappy. I mean, he was yelling and screaming and he had every right. And after 20 minutes, I didn't say a word. And I told him, John, you're right. We screwed up. He's like, what do you mean? I said, I have no excuse. We screwed up. All I mean, I can't fix the past, but we're going to fix the future. And what we're going to do is, look, we are going to put you on top of the line. We are going to expedite it. We are going to ship it air freight. And we're going, to, we're going to lose a lot of money, but it's not about the profit on this deal. We we did the you know we did it wrong, and the model of Fernway and the model of Fernway portfolio companies we do it right, right? It's not about you know massive mission statements and value statement. Our value statement is very simple. We do the right thing, and this time we didn't, and we're going to fix it. And um, he sent a very nice letter right last week, which is he said, look, you know, I, you guys are still not out of the woods, and we should be. But he said, look, I'm glad you guys accepted the problem and you're fixing it. And I was this close to throwing you guys out, but at least I'm going to give you a second chance. And look, we have to earn our business every day. But for mm -hmm. me, that was a great example of let's fix our problems. Before we go and run a Boston Marathon, we need to learn how to walk in a park, yeah. right? Then once you start doing it, I mean, you know, you'll see a bunch of deals being announced by us. We are making acquisitions. The second thing is, Every deal we do, Michael, is a win-win deal, right? Every deal we do, we don't think of it as a transaction. We think of it as a partnership, right? I mean, look, think about it this way. When a, think of the one time you got screwed, right? Pick any time. Did it make you feel good? No. Would you do business ever again? No. And I'm not in the business of making people feel miserable, right? I'm okay, Michael, leaving some money on the table. Because the reality is that I think I'm leaving money on the table. I'm actually not leaving money on the table. I'm doing the right thing, right? I want to make money. I want you to make money. I want you to feel like it's a good deal. And you look at our deals, right? I mean, I can talk about Cavatech and I can talk about AZZ. In both those deals, you know, it was a carve out of an entity from a public company. And both of those entities came to us and said, look, in our 20 years history, 30 year history, 40 year history, we have never had this kind of uh, experience during the last two months, three months, four months, five months, where, you know, it was, it was intense, but it was never antagonistic. And for me, that's a big deal, Michael, yeah. right? Uh, because I want to keep doing business with you again and again and again, right? And if I'm a jerk once, I'm a jerk all the time. Yeah. And uh, so how we do business is a big thing for us. And then the last one, which is the most important one or equally important is, you know, in every one we have realized is people matter. And I've only talked about the good thing, but the bad, uh, bad side is also true. There are some people who are not a good fit for whatever reason, they're not bad people. They know it, you know it, and you just have to make the decision, right? Nobody likes bad news. Nobody likes confrontational things. And one of the things we do at Fernway very good, maybe not as good as I would like it to be, but we do good is we love confrontation, right? If something doesn't seem right, we speak up right? If you're not doing your job, Michael, we speak up. If you're not doing your job and you're not the right fit, we speak up. And that allows us to very honestly stop the, sorry for the language, political bullshit, which happens in companies where everybody knows what you're doing is wrong, but they will whisper it in the hallway, but nobody will speak up in the meetings, will speak up in a thing. Yeah. 
and we call it out, including, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I won't, I've done a lot of dumb stuff in my life, but that's how you learn. That's how I learned. And, you know, I was in a meeting and I said something uh, last week, we had a, what's called a QBR quarterly business review. And I said something and the CEO put up the hand and said, Nick, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with you. And this is wrong. And, uh, you know, after a 10 minute debate, because I never wanted to accept I was wrong. After <laughs> 10 minutes, I was wrong. Yeah. And I said, you're right. Cut it off, right? Why are we wasting it? I mean, it was fantastic for him to call me out to say, Nick, that's a waste of time, right? We're not going to do it. What you're saying is not worth our effort. It's not going to yield the impact. It's not going to give us the customer satisfaction we want. It was a big way for us to say, okay, we learned it. You know, what's interesting about this is that we both know you need to have smarter people in the room with you. Even though we know this, when they point out we are wrong, it always hurts a little. <laughs> You know, it is true, Michael, but one of my mentors said this to me, and I, I remember it. He said, Nick, you're going to be wrong. Would you want me to tell you you're wrong? Or do you want me, the whole world to tell you you're wrong? Which one do you prefer? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It still hurts. I can tell you this because remember once in our company, we hired this lady, brilliant mind, and she thinks in the digital world, right? Which is not really my area of domain of expertise. And often she'll say something that in my mind cannot possibly be true, but it turns out to be true. And the thing we forget is that sometimes we can't know what we don't know because of not rational logic, but because of culture and age. Yeah. And you know, you, you hit something, right? We all as much as we claim we have thin skins, right? Yeah. Rightfully so. We are all egoistic. We all want to have validation. And we all will go towards people who will make us feel better. Yeah. And we'll always push back people who don't make us feel better, which is calling out our flaws. But I tell you, Michael, those are the guys, those are the gals you really want to hold on. Because unfortunately, the former category, you can find them dime a dozen. The latter yes. category, they're very few, Right. And you want, I mean, you don't want to jerk, but you know, you want somebody to say, Nick, you're wrong. Michael, you're wrong. You did this wrong. And it's, it really hurts, but man, that is something which is very valuable. So, I mean, look, I'm no saint and I'll, I won't sit here and say, I like it, but people who call me out, I, I tell them all, I really hate you. I really do hate you. <laughs> In that but, moment, yes. <laughs> but I, I really need you, right? Like. For example, I have a very good friend, a mentor, you know, whatever you want to call. His name is Ahmad Shatila. He was a former CEO of MEMC. He is now a serial entrepreneur. And I tell him because he is one of the guys I talk to and he is very good. And he, he says this in a good way. He says, I really don't care. I'm going to tell you when you're wrong. And he always tells me when I'm wrong. And I always tell him, I say, Ahmad, I hate you. I really do hate you, right? Why do I even call you? Because whenever I call you, I feel miserable. Yes. And then 30 minutes later, I'll call him and nine out of 10 times I'll say, yeah, you're right. You know, I, I knew it was wrong, but I just was hoping I was not wrong. And it goes both ways, right? And, uh, you know, multiple times I've gone and told him and he's yelled at me and thrown me out of his office. And uh, his assistant will say, you really made my boss angry, right? And I'll be like, yeah. And she'll be like, Are you, am I going to see you again? And I'll be like, yep, you're going to see me again tomorrow, right? And <laughs> It's that kind of a relationship, I tell you, Michael, are to be treasured, right? Because unfortunately, there are very few you get of those. And when you get it, hold on to those. Yeah. For me, one of the most important things I've noticed is that sometimes you're not fighting with someone because they're wrong or right. It's because you realize they're the next generation. 
And it's really hard to give control to the next generation. Yeah. Because when you have someone younger than you who is right and you know they're right, and sometimes you don't even know if they're right because you can't really understand what they're talking about. It's a field you know nothing about. It's about passing control to the next generation. I've seen that so many times with family-run businesses whereby the conflict is not about the logic. The logic is very clear, but the, the conflict exists because it's a handing of power and it's always <laughs> going to be difficult. Yes. Right? It's, it's not about whether we should make this investment. It's about if we agree to make this investment, we are admitting that the younger generation is taking over. And it's very hard to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think, Michael, it's in general, right? Everybody want, wants to feel important. Yes. Uh, and that includes me and that includes you. And um, if you perceive anything is make, going to make you less important, even if it's your own son or your daughter or the younger generation, and it's a tough conversation. I mean, I have this conversation with a lot of my really good friends who run family-owned companies. You know, they start the company. They are the brains behind it. They're the brainiacs. And the time comes when they need to not give up the baton is wrong word, but they need to bring in more brains into the stuff. And it's really hard. But this is the conversation I have with them. But I say, look, this is where one plus one is really equal to three. Yeah. Right. It's not like, don't think about it. You're giving up. You're actually getting leverage. To, you're already one and you'll always be one. You're just making one plus one is equal to three. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Because it's always the toughest thing when it comes to motivating people. We all know these things about have younger people, have smarter people. You know, as you say, have the best people working with you versus being on the other side. But it's when you put everyone together is when managing those dynamics. And I think you have you know, some good examples of how to do that. Nick, thank you so much. This is a really amazing conversation. I didn't no, think you hey, could Michael, go in the direction you ended up going. No, no, no. I mean, you got me talking on a topic which I love. No, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I hope it was helpful. It and, was very uh, helpful. Anything else if I can do to help, um, even if it's not for an interview, ping me. Glad to, you know. As you probably figured, I love to talk. Anything I can talk about this, I'd love to do. Yeah, I think it was amazing. We definitely will keep in touch. And at some other point, it'll be good to have you on the show and see how things are progressing with the portfolio companies. And oh, so I would love it. Absolutely. Count me in. Perfect. Thank you so much, Nick. Take care. We'll be in touch. <laughs> Thanks. Bye, Michael. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.